essay, The Case for Colonizing Gaza, has unsurprisingly uh, generated a lot of negative criticism, but I don't even know if you can technically categorize it as criticism, because often criticism is something that engages with and pushes back against points made in the piece, and I get the overwhelming impression that the people who are criticizing my piece never bothered to read it. This is the exact same experience I had when I wrote my column about the Lenin statue in Fremont, Seattle. People would say all kinds of things to me, and multiple times when I did bother to engage them, I very quickly came to understand that they had not read the piece and they believed that I had said things that I either had not said or that I had said the opposite explicitly. One example would be that a lot of people accused me of very foolishly calling for the statue of Lenin to be torn down. But if you read the column, I explicitly say that I do not think it should be torn down. I think that the community is to decide what they want to do with it, and if they want to keep it, so be it. Never mind the fact that it's on private property. A lot of people also felt that they needed to point out to me that it was on private property as if I didn't already know this and had not already written about this. The same thing happened again when I went to Twitter and made my argument about the psychopathologies of Lenin and Hitler. A lot of people have uh, mistaken that. My critics overwhelmingly, I would say almost without exception. In fact, I don't know of a single case where somebody saw the argument I made about the psychopathologies of those dictators and they understood the point that I was making and they disagreed. They have either agreed with the point that I was making or completely misunderstood the point, which is far fewer people, but of all the people that disagreed, they fall into the category of not knowing what I was saying. And sometimes I'll try to point this out to people. I'll say, well, that isn't what I said. I never defended Hitler. I, I very clearly and repeatedly said that he is an evil, delusional sociopath. And if that is a defense of somebody, well, then uh, <laughs> you'll have to explain what you think the word defense means when you call somebody evil. I think you're already moved away from anything that can be considered a defense. That's about the worst thing you can say about somebody ever. And some of the responses that I get to this is, oh, well, if you're such a good writer, then shouldn't you have been able to write better so that it was more clear so that people wouldn't misunderstand you? And to this, I can only, I can only respond that I think that the people who, who, I think that what I wrote was extremely clear and people are either, frankly, too stupid or pretending to be stupid so that they can play this game, essentially. And this is something that I recently heard Sam Harris talk about uh, in one of his podcasts where people will endlessly, endlessly misunderstand you. No matter, no matter how clear you are, no matter how much you take pains to explain yourself, no matter how many times you revisit the subject and lay it out ever more plainly, ever more simply, ever more clearly, they will still come back with something like, oh, look, he's defending Hitler again. There's no way out of this because they're not trying to have a good faith engagement with what you actually said. So recently, uh, there's this, uh, there's an individual out of Seattle. He's some, some kind of a comedian. Um, 
and he, I guess he, he's, he's accusing me, of course, of defending Hitler. And I pointed out to him, I've, I've never done such a thing in all my life. Uh, I've only ever had hatred and criticism for Hitler. And you can look at anything I've written to see that. But he clearly hasn't read what I've written and is, and is um, spending a lot of his time on X going over this point again and again about how I'm a defender of Hitler. So it doesn't seem as if I'm going to be able to get through to him or communicate to him what I actually think. And it doesn't seem as if he's interested in engaging with the reality of what I've said or what I think. And given that he doesn't seem to be a very serious person in the first place, I'm not really invested in trying to persuade him. But I did have another experience along the same lines, uh, and this was to do with the, the essay again on the, um, the case for colonizing Gaza, in which I basically made the argument that something like what, what the U.S. and U.K., what the Allied powers did during World War II, after World War II, sorry, in occupying Germany and transitioning it from Nazi Germany to the Federal Republic of Germany, and also in Japan, taking these countries and turning them into liberal, peace-loving democracies, that was a good project, and that was maybe one of the only really good examples in history where a project of nation-building was a fabulous success. And you can contrast this with the abject failures of nation-building in places like Afghanistan, Iraq. But the reason that they failed, I think, is important to understand because it's not as if they failed simply because nation-building is always and forever a bad idea. Again, I would draw your attention right back to Japan and Germany. What was it about Japan and Germany that made them a success? And what I would argue is that, for one thing, in Afghanistan, there really wasn't much of a nation-state to begin with. It's a lot of disparate villages, sometimes at war with each other, there's not a lot of uh, communication across the nation. There's not a lot of electricity. There's not a lot of literacy. The literacy rate is like 35% averaged out across the nation. And when you get into the rural areas, it drops below 10%. In some of those villages, people can't even count to five. You're really starting from scratch if you're starting with the project of trying to create a modern, liberal, democratic nation-state. That would take decades, if not over a century, and I would argue that that is probably a doomed project, and you should just leave it alone. There is a reason why they call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. But now contrast that with Germany and Japan, which were highly industrialized, highly educated, highly developed nation states. Everything was already in place. The literacy rates were very high. You, you had a well-connected, centralized system. You didn't have to do all of the groundwork and build everything from scratch. You could just come in and change a few of the details at the top. And that, that, although Gaza is a Middle Eastern region and you might be led to assuming that it's more analogous to Afghanistan, that's not actually the case. The literacy rate, for instance, in Gaza is hovers at around 98%. Palestinians are highly educated people, and they live in a highly industrialized, modern area. If you, uh, In my essay, I added many video links of Palestinians themselves uploading videos saying, 
uh, I miss the way it was before October 7th, before the airstrikes. And that's meant to, that's meant to draw attention to how, how bad the bombing has been. But I don't think, as I pointed out in the essay, I don't think they realize that they're also making another point unintentionally, which is, look how good it is. And if you go back and see my earlier post, The Problem of Palestinian Culture, I go through multiple metrics talking about how you know, the, the quality of life in Gaza is much higher than people think. They're much wealthier. 30% of the population has obesity. They live longer lives. They're not actually likely to be killed in an airstrike. They're likely to live long and safe. And it's, it's not the hellhole that uh, many people have been led to believe that it actually is. It's, and if you look at the videos, you'll see some of these areas, these, some of these cities look nicer than Israeli cities. They look like resorts, incredibly beautiful. And so there is already all of the groundwork, all of, it's all already been established. As much as Hamas has stolen from the people, there is still so much there. You do not have to go in and build everything up from scratch. You already have a highly educated industrial society. All you really need to do is make changes such as taking out the genocidal math textbooks and replacing them with normal mathematic textbooks. These kinds of things. Just tweaks to the education system, not creating an entire education system from scratch. You know, So tweaks to the medical system, namely just removing Hamas, not creating an entire system from scratch. You already have a health ministry, you have hospitals, number of hospitals, you have hotels, you have schools, you have all these things already. You just have to go in and make sure that they're not teaching genocidal violence. Getting the ideology out, as we did in Nazi Germany, as we did in Japan, that would be the project. And that is much more easy to accomplish than going into Afghanistan and just creating a nation state, essentially, out of the desert, out of the mountains. It's not, I just don't think that that's something that we should even ever attempt to do. And for this argument, for saying that we should go there and we should do this, and the reason to do this, by the way, is twofold. Because Hamas is seeding the society with genocidal violence. And we see that in polls, which you can go into the essay, you can see the surveys that I link to. There's been year in and year out and year in and year out, polls have been conducted asking Gazans and asking people in the West Bank whether they support genocidal violence, specific terrorist incidents, also more broadly, asking them about October 7th. What do you think about that, that violence? Was that good? Was that horrific? And the support for these things is at 70 to 80%, which is vastly larger than, as I point out in the, in the piece, the survey evidence that I've seen of support for Germans, Germans supporting the Nazis at the time of World War II was around 38%, and then a few years later it rose up to about 44%, and then we don't really have good data after that. And that isn't the same thing as support for the Holocaust, although I think you can draw a line between the two because, as I've written, people saw their neighbors disappearing in the night. They knew what was happening. They heard the speeches Hitler was giving. I think we can reasonably assume that any relatively intelligent German citizen understood. They may not have known exactly the details of what the inside of a death camp looked like, but they knew enough. They, they, they knew better.
they should have said something, done something. They cannot plead ignorance here. But still, we're looking at, let's say, 40% support for the Nazis. Let's equate that to 40-44% support for the Holocaust, even though you know, it wasn't until after the war when the Allies actually stepped onto the grounds of the death camps that they realized the reality of those horrors. But let's just say that everybody did know that supported, that's 44%. Okay, and in Gaza, in the West Bank, 80, 80%. So what do you do when a society is that genocidal? Arguably more genocidal than any other society. That's higher numbers than if you look at the Rwandan genocide. That's higher numbers than support of Germans for the Nazis. That's higher than if you look at Japan. That's higher. That's, there really hasn't been a society that has been this deeply brainwashed to be this genocidal. And you have to have sympathy for the Palestinians because it's not as if they had a choice in the matter. They've had these ideas beaten into their skulls children you can find videos of little kids being asked what do you want to be when you grow up and the answers they give back involve killing Jews it is unbelievable and and it it just tears your heart to see these things the reason to do this project the reason to want to take this uh, this project on and make these societal changes is not only to safeguard the lives of Jewish children, but also to provide a future where Palestinian children can thrive, where they're not going to, unless you think that it's a good idea for them to be growing up with all this genocidal evil in their minds, it is for them not to have that and to try to do it in a way that doesn't involve flattening all of Gaza, which seems as if that, that's more or less where we're headed right now. What else are you supposed to do? There's, there's no two-state solution because Hamas has, wants nothing to do with it. So, and there's, there's no doing the status quo because that is Hamas just continuing its genocidal violence multiple times as their own leaders say they are going to do. They are going on television and saying, we're going to do this. So what, what exactly are we supposed to do in this situation? Anyway, that's the argument I made that we should do this for the children of the Palestinian children, for Jewish children. We do not want to have an entire society that is being basically force-fed genocidal rhetoric. If you care at all for the Palestinian people, you don't, you don't want that for your people. Imagine these were your own brothers, your own sisters, your own children. Would you want your sister growing up in a society where it's just nonstop hate Jews, hate Jews, you, you got to kill these Jews? It, like, you wouldn't want anybody that you love to be subjected to that kind of, but they are subjected to that kind of information endlessly. So is, what are we supposed to do about this? So I made this argument, and to my great disappointment, uh, one of my earlier podcast guests, Arash Azizi, who had come on to discuss his latest book, What Iranians Want. It's a fantastic book. We had a very interesting conversation. I was very pleased. Um, there's a pro-Palestinian activist on X who took my essay about Gaza and called me a racist. So evidently, because I want to remove the genocidal hatred from the minds of Palestinians so that they can live and, and have a, a flourishing future, just as I 
I've lived in Japan. I love Japan. I speak Japanese. I love the culture. I love the people. And I think that the, the reversal that they went through in the years following World War II was the greatest, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to them. Because before that, they were comparable to the Nazis in terms of the scale of evil. And now they're one of the greatest societies on earth, in my opinion. I want that for the Palestinian people. I want them to thrive and have an open, booming economy and freedom of travel, no checkpoints, no nighttime raid, no, nothing. Just I want them to have a life like the Japanese have. And I'm thinking, well, how can we get there? Well, how did the Japanese get there? Well, is it possible to apply some of the same methods that we did with the Japanese? Would it work? And I think for the reasons that I just finished explaining, centralization, development, industrialization, education, some of that is actually possible. And I'm motivated here by, by a compassion and a love for these people as I love the Japanese, as I, as I love Germans. And to be called racist because, to be called racist toward a group of people because you're trying to think of how these people can actually thrive because you care about them, you know, as opposed to, well, they're genocidal towards us, so we are just going to wipe them out. That's, I suppose that's another approach to this problem, but it's not one that I advocate. That would be evil, in my opinion. And somebody calls me racist for this. Okay, fine, whatever. I mean, <laughs> the idiotic reasons that for which I am called racist are legion. Uh, in fact, just this morning, I was explaining that I used to live for years in India and there was a couple traveling, you may have seen this, a couple, uh, uh, an older man and a younger woman, and she was gang raped by seven men, and they beat up the older man, and they gang raped her. And this was been, uh, this, this is going viral on X right now. And, and I commented that uh, I've lived in India for years, and I love it very much. I love Indian culture and people, but this is a very serious issue in India. The issue of rape is a very serious issue. And I'd never met a traveler in India who didn't have, a uh, female traveler that is, who didn't have a story to tell of being groped or worse in some cases. And I witnessed it many times myself, women being groped or uh, once on a long train ride, a complete stranger, a British woman asked if she could sleep in my cot with me because a man had walked by in the night in the hallway and just licked her foot. And she was, she was a, beside herself. She was shaking. She was scared. And she didn't even know who I was. She's, she's approaching a complete stranger asking for, for me to pretend like she's my girlfriend just so that she can, you know, you have to imagine just to, because she doesn't know that I'm not some, some terrible person and she's willing to approach me because she's so scared of, of being on her own. This is a serious problem. As much as I do love India so very much, this is one of the problems that it has in its society that needs to be addressed, and, and I hope that there is improvement on this issue. And I wrote something to that effect, and somebody said, oh, you're racist against Indians. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm racist against Indians because I love Indians and I love India, and, and apparently because I oppose rape. So all of these things have been building up, these different various psychopathic almost or insane attacks. You know, you're, you're racist because you, you are a 
opposed to the, you think that the issue of rape in India or sexual assault is a serious one that deserves attention. You're a Nazi because you um, are strongly opposed to the massacres and horrors committed by Lenin and the Soviet Union. You're um, <clears throat> a, a Nazi because you've, you have argued for a solution that could possibly secure a safe future for the children of Palestine because you seem to care about them whatever these arguments these are these are largely not even organic reactions on social media but they are in fact generated but even though that may be the case so for instance that some of the individuals who were originally attacking me because I'm not a Leninist they are pro Hamas and quite anti-semitic from looking at their comments and then they have are attacking me and calling me a racist because I'm pointing out the issue of sexual assault in India, okay? Uh, and then in this, uh, in this orchestration, you have some, I think, good actors who get swept up in it. They see these things and they're not really paying attention. And this has happened to me before where <clears throat> when, I was, um, when I was being mobbed because I was criticizing Vladimir Lenin comparative to Adolf Hitler, both of whom are evil, despicable psychopaths, but different types of psychopaths. And because I was describing that, people said that I am therefore a Nazi. Uh, in that in that moment, there were individuals who, um, who mistakenly thought, oh, they saw other people reacting and they thought, oh, maybe this guy's a Nazi. Uh, and I noticed that that happened to one, one analyst, one journalist, and I simply reached out with uh, a link to the actual argument I had made and Less than 30 seconds later, they came back with an apology because it's quite obvious what I was saying to anyone who bothered to read it. So the same thing happened here with Arash Azizi, Iranian, who uh, I had on the show earlier. And um, it was it was more disappointing when it, it is more disappointing when it's a journalist or academic of some type, someone who is um, more careful about these things, you think. Uh Arash Azizi has a has a PhD in history. Um, he's a professor at Clemson University. He's the author, as I said, of What Iranians Want and Shadow Commander. Uh, he has quite a sizable following on Twitter. And so for him to have spoken to me and I think to know me well enough to know that I'm not racist and certainly not a fascist or even just a mere glance at any of my work would indicate that. Or more importantly, the essay in question which I, you know, in which I'm arguing for a minimization of harm and something like what we did in World War II uh, with Nazi Germany or Japan. It's quite clearly, I say it uh, more than once in the essay. So seeing that he was calling me a, f a racist and a fascist, I thought was overboard. And so I, I reached out to him. I'll just read what I wrote. I uh, I asked him actually in the comments publicly if he had actually read my essay and if so if he thought that we were in error as uh, if the if the U.S. and the U.K. were in error with what they did to Nazi Germany during World War II or in the wake of World War II, um, occupying it and reforming it and turning it into the uh, the the Federal Republic of Germany, which is that's all that I was recommending. And, and and 
Palestinian culture, as I pointed out in the piece, is significantly more genocidal in terms of support for genocidal violence compared to Germans at the time of World War II. So even more so to be uh, recommending some kind of action to correct that. So anyway, I wrote to him, Arash, I hope you are well. This was a, uh, something I wrote to him directly. Arash, I hope you are well. I was disappointed to see you calling me racist and fascist. You know that I am neither. I have to wonder, did you bother to even read my essay? The argument has to do with opposing genocide and applying some of the same methods that we did to transition Nazi Germany to modern Germany. I would be interested to hear what you think is fascist about ending fascism in Germany, or what is racist about trying to create a future where Jewish and Palestinian children can live, can thrive. I also believe in good faith dialogue and hashing these kind of disputes out in a civil manner. I hope you share that belief. I would be happy to have you on the show again, and you can tell me everything you dislike about my essay in front of my audience. If you prefer not to come on the show, I hope we can at least address this privately. Despite the disgusting remarks you made about me, I still respect the work you do and think you are a good-faith actor. Well, I wrote that, and uh, I wrote that this earlier today, and, uh, well, the day's done. Uh, he saw it after I wrote it, and there was no response either to what I wrote in the thread or what I wrote privately. Just um, radio silence. I do think we would have something interesting to talk about. I think that this is an important issue, and I think that he's completely misunderstood what I was writing about in my essay. Well, it's it's obvious that he's misunderstood it if he thinks that it can be possibly misconstrued as racist or as fascist then he doesn't know what I was saying, but I would be happy to explain and have that conversation. And I think maybe he would have some criticisms or uh, reframing or something else that he could possibly provide in the conversation. But it doesn't seem as if... I'm still open to it. I'd love to have him on the show. I, I still respect the work he does. Um, and hopefully he will consider, as it stands, th the idea that what I wrote was racist or fascists, just falls completely in line with exactly the kind of rhetoric, exactly the kind of rhetoric that I've been seeing with regard to people calling me racist because I'm concerned about the, 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 high, the high prevalence of, of rape in India, and therefore it's racist to care about rape, or it's racist to care about massacres in Russia, uh, or to uh, have any kind of understanding of the psychopathology of uh, historical dictators such as Lenin uh, and Hitler or Mao or Stalin to just say, okay, racist, okay, Nazi, okay, fascist. This is just the worst and most puerile and, and frankly, stupid form of, of engaging with an argument. I think he's better than that, and I'd like to give him the chance to respond, but in any event... I'd also like to just put this out there as a commentary on this phenomenon that seems to be, I mean, it's it's quite common. Um, as I said earlier, this is something that I just recently listened to Sam Harris describing with regard to how nobody ever seems to get his arguments right and he just has to learn to not care about it as much. And in a subsequent podcast, he was speaking to a journalist who accused him of badgering him about Islamic terrorism when, in fact, he had maybe brought up the subject, you know, two or three times uh, over the course of perhaps an hour. 
and he had the guest back on the show uh, a, a week or two later, uh, roughly, to sort of hash out how how did this happen? How did this misunderstanding take place? This is a profound problem that seems to be just reverberating through social media, which is just this incentivization of people to either um, troll with the stupidest possible uh, attack, right? You're a Nazi, you're a racist, whatever. Um, or simply to deliberately misunderstand, and it's it's kind of a um, an erosion of good faith and and civility and intelligence. Um, this is why I think individuals such as uh, Darren Smith, I hope I'm getting his name right, the young man who very methodically worked through an argument that went viral because of the way that he was civil, methodical, good faith thinking out loud, uh, rather than just uh, dismissing, casting aspersions, you know, very ignorantly, just flippantly, just rejecting. And this has become so common that it's incredibly refreshing to see somebody who doesn't devolve into that kind of imbecility that is, that is, that should be embarrassing, but doesn't seem to embarrass the people that do it. Anyway, that's it. I'm just sort of getting that off my chest a little bit. Hope everyone has a good day.